This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Who will be the president of the United States for the next four years? Right now, we don't know. Joe Biden currently holds 238 electoral votes to President Trump's 213. But as of Wednesday morning, ballots are still being counted in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia, and the final decision may take days to decide. Among white evangelical and born-again Christians, Trump earned 78% of the vote, according to the first 110,000 voters surveyed by the Associated Press for its vote cast poll. Preliminary estimates from the national election pool put it a little lower, at 76%. We wanted to hear from those who have been following this and other races very closely, and we'll tell you a little bit more about them in a couple minutes. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. So, Ted, first, the gut check. Yeah, gut check. I mean, like many people, woke up this morning and thought, well, we still don't know. I am a little bit surprised at how many people in my, you know, kind of social media feeds are surprised or shocked that we don't know or frustrated. To me, it's like, well, isn't this seems to me to be going more or less along the lines of what we were promised, that we would have some initial results, but that we may not know for days and that this would be a long drawn out process. I think a lot of people intellectually thought that that was a likelihood. But there's a difference between having read something and saying, oh, that that will be a bummer, and then actually kind of experiencing it and not having that kind of election night catharsis. And so, yeah, I think more breath holding and, and waiting for shoes to drop. I will say, you know, gut check this morning. I woke up this morning also to the news that the son of Tim Challies, a very well-known kind of Christian blogger, he and I started blogging about the same time in the early 2000s, about, about the year 2000, I think. His son, his only son, died yesterday. Uh, that put a lot of things in perspective for me. So that's where my gut check is this morning. Kind of, if you're wondering, kind of where I am emotionally on this election morning, it, it's it's a little distant from the election. Most of all, I wanted to get up and hug my kids this morning. How about you, Morgan? What was what's your gut check? I <laughs> I finally felt the election anxiety that I was wondering where it had been. Election anxiety slash adrenaline at the same time. There's nothing like seeing someone point around at different states and counties that I have never heard of or only hear of every four years to kind of get me back in that emotional headspace that I think I first felt during Bush versus Gore 20 years ago, actually. It's a culmination of being super amped and also very nervous at the same time. And so... (laughs) Sleeping on it did help and just deciding to call it a night, I think, also just made it so that I wasn't like reacting with my late night brain, which is far more emotional than other parts of my brain. It is really interesting what's going on. And Ted, I am totally with you with regards to we did hear that it was going to take a while to be counted. It's hard to know whether the system is working because people predicted that it would take a while to be counted or if that means that there's something like more fundamentally broken there because of that. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to ascertain, especially since you, if you can predict that it's going to take a long time to count things, you think you would just then figure out a different way to count votes. Um, it's maybe a little bit sidestepping exactly what we're talking today since it's going more into the systems and not necessarily the candidates themselves. But I do think it is strange that we have to wait in an era of real time, seemingly everything. So that's kind of where I'm, where it's I'm at. It's so theologically appropriate to have to <laughs> wait to know what's going to happen. Anyway, I think that that's, that's you know, we're, <laughs> always, we're always waiting for our king, so we might as well wait a little bit to know who the president's going to be. So tell us about the three people. Yes, three people. three people, an unusual quick to listen today. We have on our show today, senior news editor, Kate Shelnut, Christianity Today, senior news editor, uh, Kate Shelnut, Christianity Today, news editor, Danielle Sullivan. And also Ryan Burge, who you have seen a number of times in Christianity Today, 
has written for us a lot. He is assistant professor of political science and graduate coordinator at Eastern Illinois University. He writes a lot at Religion in Public, a site that he helped to found, and then writes also for pretty much every place that you can imagine, from the New York Times to World, and especially Christianity Today, especially looking at the numbers behind religion and politics. So Ryan, a special welcome to you. Let's start with Kate. Kate, what's your what's your gut check this morning? Similar to both of you, I had gone into the night expecting that this morning we wouldn't have an answer and that Daniel and I would be writing a story about a delayed result in the election. However, for me, I really thought we would have kind of an inkling either way. And we were more waiting for for confirmation that we would see one candidate having a narrower path to victory than the other. And to be honest, at least when, when I went to bed around four, it looked like a dead heat to me. It looked like there was just as many chances for President Trump as there were for Joe Biden in terms of the states that we're waiting on right now. So I think for me, I just didn't expect it to really feel so undecided, even though I knew that we would be waiting for these ballot counts in states where they had those mail-in ballots and absentee ballots to go through. Daniel, we'd love to hear from you. I definitely echo echo Kate's feelings. I Thinking back to 2016, I was thinking, yeah, it wasn't decided for a while, but it seemed like the scales were clearly tipping where it's a little more sort of wait and see <laughs> right now. And then I also, as, as we're watching these numbers come in, I just feel like there's so much we don't know, both about like demographic movements and what was deciding people's votes and yeah, how people are understanding the state of our country and the particular candidates and the choices that were, that were fronted, presented to them. I just am kind of struck by how much we don't know this morning. Absolutely. Yeah. Ryan, you, you have been looking at this also over a long time. And I think we're one of the people who promised it would be a, a while. How are you this morning? Try to pride myself on being a rigorously empirical, you know, rational person. But last night put that to the test. You know, I was thinking last night that who in the world wants to be an election forecaster after this one? Um, you know, I think that's like the worst job in America right now. If they call me and said, would you like to do it? We'll pay you a whole lot of money to go work for the Times or 530. I would be like, no, I'm good. I'll be a tenured assistant professor or associate professor at that <laughs> point. A lot more job security. But the thing is, like when you build these models, hardly ever do they have to prove themselves out in the real world. They just have to work, you know, in your own little paper that you're writing, and you never have to like actually show if like it matches up to real world results. And it's like building like a self-driving car and then putting it on the road and taking your hands off the wheel and saying, Oh, I think this is gonna work, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. And then having to correct over the evening as you see things happening that you did not expect to happen. Or, you know, like as Donald Rumsfeld said, unknown unknowns happened. And you have to kind of recalibrate throughout the night. And the whole time I was thinking, I am so glad that not a million people are, are you know, refreshing my blog every minute trying to find my next thought. So it's early. Like everyone else said, it's very early. And I'm still not convinced the polls were off as much as people are saying they were off on social media. Well, let's get into that a little bit and look at some of the, the numbers. Ryan, tell us a, a little bit of what we know so far when it comes to how different kinds of Christians voted. We mentioned at the top of the show that at least some of the early exit poll data suggests that white evangelical born again. We've talked a lot about why white's broken out, why evangelical born again's broken out as a, as a group. Maybe we can uh, repeat some of that. But anyway, we, we're looking at 78% going for Trump or perhaps 76% going for Trump. Don't know if that, if you think that is probably accurate, should we be wary of that? And then as you've looked at exit poll data on religion, especially Christians, you know, what numbers are, are surprising to you? Yeah. So first with the evangelical number, this is self-identified evangelicals in exit polls. So they ask you, do you consider yourself born again or evangelical? They typically don't filter out product. They only they so you can have Catholics, you can have Mormons, you can have Muslims, you can have Buddhists. And by the way, some of those people do say they're born again or evangelical. So they're sort of thrown into that mix too. Yeah, um, you said last night, you said last night fifteen percent of Catholics, but also thirteen percent of Muslims and seven percent of Jews say 
uh, yes, I'm born again evangelical. I don't know if they, they filtered out just for Protestant, which they should have, the exit polling firm. I don't think they did that, though. So grain of salt and all that stuff, the 78 or 76% number is actually right in line with what 2016 was, what 2012 was, and what 2008 was. It's usually between 75 and 78%. So I don't see really any significant shifts there. I think Trump, is he did not do better with white evangelicals, but he didn't do worse either, which I think either is a story and an angle on the story. It does look like about 4% went for third-party candidates, which is actually more than I would have guessed because there really were not viable third-party candidates this time like there were four years ago. So I think that's going to be a story as well as where they go, who they vote for, because they really didn't have a good choice like they had like in 2016. Daniel and Kate, if either of you guys wanted to comment on that 78% number that we have seen so far. To clarify, I do think that vote cast number does include non-Protestants, but I imagine even when we get down the line more of a a specific statistic for evangelicals by belief, for evangelicals by tradition, that we're going to see the same levels of support just based on kind of where we've seen pastors and Christian leaders align a number of political scientists have confirmed what we've seen anecdotally, which is not a lot of people who supported Donald Trump in 2016 are no longer supporting him in 2020, that it reflects kind of what we've seen on the ground, that the president's evangelical supporters have remained steady or gotten more enthusiastic. And we really see few, if any, people kind of dropping out because of what they've seen from the president. And a lot of that is is based on policy and what they see as effectiveness in office. Ryan, did you encounter some other surprises over the course of the evening? So the Catholic vote to me is wild because I've looked at several different um, outcomes. In the vote cast, I have it 52% Catholics for Biden, which is crazy high. Like that's actually probably the upward bound of my optimistic scenario for Biden. I think that, so in 2016, in the two-party vote, Trump got 59 and Biden got, or uh, Clinton got 41, so an 18 point spread. And if these numbers are to be believed, Biden actually got a six point advantage this time around. Trump only got 46 and Biden got 52. But then I have exits for NBC amongst Catholics, white Catholics, and they show 66% for Trump and 34% for Biden, which is wildly different, like way outside the margin of error. And I don't know how to parse those two things. I think realistically, I thought that that Trump was going to get low 50s amongst Catholics, 52, 53%. And then Biden was going to get, you know, 45, 46, 47. I don't see how he could have got to 66%. I think if Trump gets to 66% amongst white Catholics, then he should have won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Uh, Michigan by large numbers. And that obviously at 7.32 a.m. Central Time is not true. So that's where the exit polls are not jiving with what my mind would think in terms of statewide composition of Rust Belt State. So I think more realistically, I think Biden did peel away some support. He got the white Catholic vote down to maybe 52-48, 52% for Trump, 48% for him, which probably will be enough to take several of those Rust Belt states. I think that's a big story. Ryan, one of the things that may need updating in my kind of understanding of of religion and politics here is that that Catholic vote. My kind of rubric that I kind of put on these things is that Catholics generally have voted straight down the middle of how the American vote has generally gone. Has that shifted in recent elections? I mean, do we see Catholics voting different than the general American populace? Are there are there trends there? Generally, I think that that Catholics are a good bellwether for American society as a whole, because racially, they're starting to look more and more like America. They're becoming less white over time, a lot more Hispanics, especially. But there's some African-American Catholics as well. They're, They're also seeing that same bifurcation that we're seeing in the general electorate, which is that white people have become more Republican over time. While at the same time, people of color have stayed very strongly for the Democrats. So in 2008, it was 55% for McCain amongst white Catholics. In 2012, it was 56% white Catholics for Romney. 2016 with Trump, he won 59%. That trend continued apace, which to me, that was the most interesting question going into this election was, were white Catholics going to keep going to the right and go 60, 61, 62% to the right? Or was this going to be sort of a repudiation of Trump? 
and the, that, that rightward shift is going to turn back to the left. I think we're seeing a little bit of that. And I also think we're seeing the Hispanic Catholic vote is a really interesting one. That actually might be the story of 2020, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot more in just a little bit. I do want to talk about that more, Ryan. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about what we know about the quote-unquote Latino vote, since this seems to be a particular narrative that people are interested in complicating or ending on social media, depending on who you follow, this idea of a monolithic Latino vote. Maybe you can nuance that for us, particularly among different ethnic groups and also between Protestants and Catholics. Two data points I want to point out from last night. It's something we do know for sure. So Miami-Dade County, which is you know a predominantly Hispanic county, predominantly a, a blue stronghold too. Democrats have done very, very well there. For instance, Clinton in 2016 won Miami-Dade County by almost 30 points in 2016. Biden won it by less than 10 points last night, which was really like one of the first warning signs for the Biden campaign that he was going to lose Florida because you've got to run up the vote in eastern Florida because the panhandle, which comes in later, is going to be very, very red. So you got to have a lead going into the central time zone, and he did not have that, which is why he lost Florida. Now, that's a Cuban population, and we know that Cubans are typically more conservative than Hispanics as a whole. Latinos as a whole are lean to the left. About 65% identify as Democrats or vote for the Democrats. So Cubans are about 50-50. Now, the other one that really has been stuck in my mind is a little bitty county on the Rio Grande Valley, so on the border of Mexico and Texas, called Star County, Texas. Now, there were only 20,000 votes cast in Star County last night, predominantly Hispanic. I think ninety over 90% of the population is Hispanic. Hillary Clinton won it by 50 points in 2016, and Biden won it by five points last night. For me, those are like two like bellwethers of like, wow, either it's Biden doesn't do well with Hispanics or man, the Democrats have really lost significant ground with Hispanics. So to bring that to the religion angle, we know that Hispanic evangelicals especially are a really interesting group because on immigration, they're not as conservative as Republicans are on things like building the wall, sanctuary cities, charging border crosses with felonies, kind of issues like that. But on issues on abortion and gay marriage, Hispanic evangelicals are actually more conservative than white evangelicals on those issues. So, and then on, on fiscal policy, they're just as conservative as white evangelicals. So, I feel like they're a group that could have gone either way in 2020, but it looks like, and this is what we're initially seeing here, is that a lot of Hispanic evangelicals and even some Hispanic Catholics shifted from a Clinton vote in 2016 to a to a Trump vote in 2020, which kind of spells a lot of doubt going forward for what the Democratic coalition looks like. Well, I definitely want to talk about some of the other stuff that <laughs> people voted on besides the president, since those races, it does seem that we have a little bit more knowledge about what happened. So, Daniel, I'm going to pivot to you right now, since I know that you had done some reporting about third parties. Did any third party candidate to get any traction last night that you find significant and want to bring to our attention? No. End of story. Not really, but that was to be expected. And that's what all of the third party presidential candidates that I spoke to for CT kind of told me they were, they were hoping like each one sort of wanted to establish themselves as an option, but didn't see this as like the year things changed for third parties. I mean, it's generally a pretty hard row to hoe for third parties. Only only three third party candidates since World War II have made any kind of substantive showing. And at least right now, the, the numbers show that like the Libertarian candidate got about 1%. The Green Party candidate got 0.2% sort of nationwide. And everyone else got about 0.3%. Now, interesting, you know, people down there, Kanye West was on the ballot in, in a number of states, including my home state of Tennessee, Don Blankenship, the Constitution Party, at one point thought that sort of anti-health restriction, anti-pandemic stuff would buoy him in some places like Michigan, but that didn't really turn out. And then the American Solidarity Party with Brian Carroll, they seemed, the American Solidarity Party, which attracted a bunch of never-Trump evangelicals, it seems, they seemed pretty happy that they had some showing, but, you know, it's not going to shake up the political scene in any way. In my neighborhood, it seems to. I'll tell you, I looked at the uh, precinct maps here, and if you if precincts matter, 
<laughs> and in this case, they don't in Illinois. A number of the precincts are uh, red that, that would have gone blue with American Solidarity Party, the just tiny numbers of American Solidarity Party votes. But in, in Wheaton, yeah, those numbers are so tight that in uh, at the precinct level, the half dozen uh, American Solidarity Party votes changed our little neighborhood maps anyway. It's interesting where that where it happens. It seems to be very local and very kind of personal where you get that kind of outbreak. For instance, I the Prohibition Party, which is the oldest continual political party of the US, didn't do bad in Arkansas. They're all just saying, let's establish ourselves as an alternative in case the two-party system breaks down. I mean, it really is a kind of like it would take something cataclysmic probably and they just want to be the escape pod. Kate, I would love to hear from you about any of the propositions or different ballot measures that you were tracking over the course of the evening. Well, the biggest ones for evangelicals are going to be the measures on abortion. The two ones that we had covered were in Colorado and in Louisiana. In Colorado, a measure that would have been its first kind of ban on abortion at a certain point in pregnancy at 22 weeks gestation didn't pass. And then in Louisiana, which has been much more conservative and has historically passed a number of regulations on abortion, was looking to kind of further strengthen its position in the courts when these are inevitably challenged. And it won that basically with a law that doesn't codify or even establishes that abortion is not a right secured by their state constitution. So that'll help them going forward should some of the regulations on abortion continue to go and get challenged in the courts going forward. So those were two major ones. Some of the smaller things, there were a number of states that have legalized recreational marijuana. I believe DC legalized mushrooms, so on the drug front. And there were also, oh, we celebrated that uh, Mississippi has changed its state flag. That was something that Baptists in the state had advocated for in the legislature, um, removing a Confederate emblem for the for the flag. And it was ratified and approved by the state. Um, they now have a flag that has a magnolia and says, in God we trust. So Christians are among those celebrating that change in, in Mississippi. Ryan, do you have any numbers that explain some of these more interesting ballot measures that Kate had just mentioned? So we know that legalization of marijuana is actually fairly popular with everybody, including a good chunk of evangelicals and Catholics. So it doesn't it really surprise me that we're legalizing marijuana in a lot of states. And I think I read that one third of Americans are going to live in a state where it's legal. The magic mushrooms thing seems interesting. Because <laughs> I've never seen polling data on magic mushrooms. I'll just say that. So I think the reality is that on issues of drug use, I think most Americans are moving to the left, even a lot of young evangelicals. So not a huge surprise there. It'll be interesting if it goes to more red states. Let's say Arkansas or Mississippi puts it on the ballot. I'd love to see how that turns out, but we just don't have any good polling on that at this point. Yeah, I was curious to see the Colorado measure because Colorado, you know, obviously has had a number of ballot initiatives over the years. And it does seem like, remember when I was starting out in covering evangelicals and politics, Colorado had a lot of conservative ballot measures that would pretty consistently go go con- the conservative way. It seems like Colorado has shifted a lot to be, you know, a much, a much more progressive state. So I wonder about the future, it being a place to have some of these portion ballots or some of these testing grounds or can we get this ballot measurement that either we can work into the Supreme Court as a challenge to Roe or just can we can we try something out on a conservative front here in the West rather than the South to roll out in, in some other states. So it does seem like Colorado itself is seems to be changing a little bit. It might be a reminder too that when we sort of shift from the presidency to some of these other things the country seems to be changing, but not necessarily in consistent ways. You know, the difference between the abortion ballot measure in Louisiana and Colorado is noticeable, but then drugs doesn't seem to be linked to some other issues in the way that you might expect in a sort of party platform kind of way. And then I also saw that, Ryan can correct me if, if I misunderstood this, but I, I thought I saw that more people in Florida voted for a $15 minimum wage than voted for Joe Biden, which, which <laughs> yes. is interesting. Like, well, maybe I don't understand what's going on. So, like, there's lots of shifts happening right now, but we 
we tend to talk about them like they're all linked together. And that doesn't seem to be quite accurate. Daniel, great point. A reminder that <laughs> parties are made of coalitions of interests, which is always why I like following all of these ballot measures so much, because I think it reveals that there's not necessarily as much of a through line as some of us so start to think that there is when it comes to how parties build platforms and so forth. Ryan, you were talking about drugs earlier. Do we actually know how many evangelicals end up being in favor of recreational marijuana? 55.7% of white evangelicals in 2020 favored the legalization of marijuana, and it was 46% of LDS, Latter-day Saints. To me, that's the group that would be the hardest to get, and it's almost 50-50 amongst that group. So I think if you put it on the ballot in a lot of states, I think legalizing marijuana would pass in most states right now, especially even states that have large shares of Catholics and evangelicals. I think it it would pass by a large majority. So I think that's an issue where it's clearly shifted in the last 10 or 15 years toward legalization. Just Um, to be clear, the number that you just shared was statewide in Colorado or it was nationwide? No, no, no. That's the overall, yeah, that's a a large-scale poll of nationwide white evangelicals. 55.7% were in favor of legalizing marijuana. So, And Colorado's an interesting state, by the way, because it's getting a lot more inflows from other states. A lot of people are moving to Colorado and making it more progressive, making it a bluer state. There's a lot of tech going on in Colorado. And, you know, Cory Gardner, who won the Senate seat in 2014, lost by double digits to John Hickenlooper last night, which kind of shows you who's a Democrat, which kind of shows you that state has moved dramatically, dramatically toward the left over the last couple of years, even though it's always referred to as sort of the evangelical mecca around Colorado Springs. In Denver, it's very liberal, becoming larger and more liberal every year. So I think that state will be a solidly blue state going forward. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But there all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I want to ask about Congress before we pivot back to the presidential race. Over the last few weeks and months, covered a few of these different races congressionally. How did some of those races that we were looking at as particular examples of how Christian faith and and electoral politics are interacting in Congress. How did those go? We've seen a mix of wins, losses, and ties just among the kind of sample that we were able to feature this election season. One of the the ones our readers might recognize the name John DeBerry, who was the Tennessee state 
legislator who we featured because of his position as a a pro-life Democrat. He was taken off the ballot by his party over, they say, his stance on a range of issues, but including abortion. And he ended up losing the district that he has represented since 1994 and losing to a candidate who is far more progressive than he is, took a more progressive stance on abortion, but also would be the first LGBT candidate to represent that place in Memphis. So that was one that was a loss. Bob Good, who was running for a kind of contentious and people thought might be close election in Virginia, a big district, the fifth district, which represents Charlottesville, where UVA is, as well as Lynchburg, where Liberty is. He ended up winning his race and that district stays Republican. Another one that was interesting, I'm down in Georgia and we had a massive slate of candidates going for an open Senate seat that had been previously appointed. And now Raphael Warnock, who was the the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where Martin Luther King famously served, he was featured in our October issue. He has made the runoff. That election will be happening in January between him and Kelly Loeffler, who is very famously a very pro-Trump Republican. So that tension that we see between him making a runoff with Loeffler is, I think, representative of what we see in Georgia right now. The idea that this election is pretty close and the ballots are still being counted in a kind of unlikely swing state that we've only been talking about for the past few weeks as maybe being a toss-up between the two presidential candidates. We also followed a couple of evangelical women running for Congress, one in Washington State, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who's running for re-election. She's a part of an evangelical free church and has really been emphasizing prayer and unity in divided times. She won pretty handily with, I think, like 60% of the vote out in Washington State. And then we also looked at sort of first-timer, newcomer Hillary Skolton in Michigan, trying to flip a district around Grand Rapids that's been Republican since the lines were drawn, I think, in the 90s. She's a little left of her district, but also has like deep Dutch Reformed roots and connections. And her husband teaches at Calvin, and she's a part of like the largest Christian Reformed church in the area. That race doesn't look like it's been finally called by the AP, but but she's trailing by, I don't know, 50,000 votes or something. Ryan, I want to hear a little bit about Black Protestants and what we are seeing from some of the exit poll data there and also from turnout. So we, we've talked a little bit about Latino Joel's and Latino Christians. I want, to, I want to get back to that. But before we do that, what are we seeing with Black Protestants? So black Protestants are the strongest voting bloc in America for the Democrats, typically vote around 90% for the Democrat. Hillary Clinton got, you know, 988. I think Obama was a little bit better than that in 2012, 2008. The initial data shows a little bit of softness there amongst black Protestants for Biden. I've seen numbers that say that, you know, young black people especially were not as strong for Biden. And by not as strong, I mean 80-20 for Biden instead of 90-10. And that matters in places that, are, that have, you know, for example, a state like Ohio, your rural area is going to be deep, deep red and your urban areas are going to be deep, deep blue. But you have to if you're a Democrat, you have to run up the score in places like Cleveland and Cincinnati and Columbus in the urban centers with African-Americans. because That's where the large concentrations are. But if you lose 20 percent of that, if that group, you can't run up the score as much. And I have data that's showing long term that especially amongst very devout black Protestants, young black Protestants who go to church once a week or more, they've actually moved 20 points away from the Democrats over the last 20 years. And are more likely to identify as independents. So I think that, you know, this this young black coalition of sort of evangelical black Protestants, more conservative black Protestants religiously, are not as strongly tied to the Democratic Party as their parents and grandparents were. And then we actually might see some softening amongst really devout African Americans, especially as we go forward. Now On the turnout front, here's what we know. Turnout overall was very robust this time. I mean, I've seen projections that say that it might be some of the highest turnout we've seen in our lifetimes, at least going back to 30 or 40 years, which would be a good sign for our democracy. It's good for our democracy. But in terms of like looking at turnout data for religious subgroups, 
we are way too early to figure that stuff out yet because we can't wait against the actual election results yet. So the exit polls tell us some things. I'm actually not a huge believer in exit polls, but really it's the only thing we have right now. But on things like turnout, they're a really, really bad measure, especially in this election because we had that huge split between your mail-in ballots, your absentee, your mail-in ahead of time ballots versus your day of. And exit polls don't really know how to figure out to get the mix right between the mail-in ballots and the people who voted same day, you know, day of election, usually they just wait outside the polls for people to walk out and grab people randomly. But when half the votes cast yesterday might have not been cast on election day, I don't know how you calculate turnout for anybody, especially subgroups like, you know, black Protestants or evangelicals. We're not, we're not going to be able to really parse that out for probably another couple months at least. When I think of the 2016 election, and I understand not everyone is going to love this number, but I just think 81%. And I don't think that I am alone in that number coming to mind. And in some ways, it seems like that number and that narrative have had a pretty enormous effect on the evangelical community and its ability to talk to each other and stay unified or want to stay unified. Perhaps that might be a better way to phrase it. Do any of you guys right now get a sense that there will be some sort of clear-cut narrative that emerges from this and how it might kind of impact how the church talks to each other over the next couple of years. To quote the Wu-Tang Clan or paraphrase the Wu-Tang Clan, partisanship rules everything around me. And I think that's really what this story is about. Listen, white evangelicals are Republicans. They're going to vote for the Republican no matter who it is, which is a story, right, from a theological perspective that they voted for Trump at the same level they voted for Romney. But Republicans are going to vote for Republicans. I mean, as a political scientist, we know that. Like, that's one of the very few things we know that partisanship is the most important factor in American politics today. I think the reality is they're exactly where they've always been, at least the last four elections. I mean, they were 77% for McCain, they were 77% Romney, they were basically 77% for Trump. Trump in the if you add the third parties in, and there's 77, 78% for Trump again in 2020. So really, that is the core. By the way, white evangelical Republicans are 13% of all adults in America today. They're literally the largest religious bloating block in America today is white evangelical Republicans. They are the core of the Republican Party today, and they did not go anywhere. There was no defection there, which if you're a Republican is very, very good for you in the short term. And the long term is problematic because we're seeing white evangelicals become a smaller and smaller share of the population every year as the white share of the population goes down every year. So it's a winning coalition now. I'm not so sure it's a winning coalition in five or 10 years. And going forward, one of the questions about the will be about the impact of partisanship on religious communities. I mean, I think it's not clear yet, but we certainly see signs that there are people who are less willing to claim the title evangelical or the name evangelical because they see it as a primarily political demographic that doesn't fit them going forward. We'll, we'll see what, we'll see what happens there. I think there's also a question about democratic faith outreach. Biden did more religious outreach. I, I think than than any Democrat that I can remember. I mean, if you go back to, Obama in his first term, he did like one interview talking about faith, you know, and then Kerry seemed to like avoid the topic as if he was allergic to his own Catholicism. And Biden just did, you know, every day was doing something towards religious people. And it didn't matter to this demographic. It might have mattered to other groups of people, but it didn't matter to white evangelicals and maybe not to Latino evangelicals, as we talked about earlier. So I wonder what lessons Democrats are going to take from that going forward, whether they are more likely to speak to concerns like religious liberty or whether they just say, well, that's a lost cause. We don't care. We'll never persuade those people. I want to go back to that thing where we started about talking about Latino Christians and the different kinds of coalitions among the Latino Christian vote. I hate hate to make the same error people make with evangelicals and time Latino Latino Pentecostals and, and evangelicals and Catholics, but you know, talking about these things purely as a as a voting block. But I am interested as there's outreach to in multi-ethnic churches. And multi-ethnic churches are not purely just interested in being like black, white churches, but they're interested in being black, white, Latino, Asian American churches. And I am interested as we see political division if we anticipate that it will be harder for multi-ethnic churches to pull people together because of some of the political divisions, or if we expect some of the trends, I know there's been some research saying the more 
multi-ethnic churches, especially large multi-ethnic church, kind of the less likely they are to talk about political and, and social issues. Any thoughts on on that? And I know, you know, Daniel, you've done some some work on how hard it is to have kind of purple churches, but I'm curious about where you see the Latino Christian vote and the black Christian vote playing into that. Do you think from the pastors of diverse, both politically and, and ethnically diverse churches that I talk to, that there is a tendency to try and be overtly not political or to sort of rise above partisanship and talk about how the gospel is bigger than partisanship. Christians have to agree that racism is bad and that the gospel is not a gospel for white people. And yet they can legitimately disagree on what that means for policies around policing, for example. What these churches seem to be finding is that on a dime, things will become political that weren't political before, whether that's because of the pandemic and the question of wearing masks, or whether that's because of some of the turmoil around racism, things like God loves everybody can be seen as a sort of anti-Black Lives Matter statement that would have felt neutral a month before. I do think this can be hard, and the ways that people have maintained communion will not always work going forward or will at least not not be easy going forward so it's a real a real challenge to christians who don't want partisanship to rule the day kate at the beginning of this year you had written this piece about pastor guillermo maldonado who had visited the white house a couple times during trump's presidency and then who had hosted an event for evangelicals for trump back in this was in Miami, and this took place at the beginning of the year. And I was wondering, when you worked on that story and perhaps other work that you've done over the past couple of years, if that kind of gave you a sense of where Latino evangelical turnout might look like. Not only do you see Hispanic voters overall being a group courted by President Trump, that I actually think it was a big part of their evangelicals for Trump strategy, where they really framed the policy positions they were taking and kind of some of their prayers and desires for a Hispanic evangelical voter by focusing on things like religious freedom, comparing the religious freedom offered under President Trump to the kinds of religious freedom that people from Cuba or Venezuela or Colombia, you know, those kind of governments that they they or their parents or grandparents might have fled from. Let's so he, he really set himself up in contrast. And then there were also faith leaders, including Hispanic faith leaders who were pushing Hispanic prosperity under Trump, that this was a, a good economy for them. So I think that this shows that those efforts and that messaging paid off in the kind of places that, that Ryan had talked about in Texas and in Florida. And we saw polling of Latino voters going into this election as, as being tight overall for Christians, but also as coming much more favorable than in 2016, where perhaps maybe all they knew was build a wall. And now they see kind of more more wrinkles of the Trump campaign reaching out to them in particular. And I think that as the overall evangelical coalition around Trump really does sway Pentecostal and charismatic, and because Pentecostalism is so kind of global, that it makes sense that we would see some diverse voices in that coalition, even if we think of Trump as being kind of the white evangelical traditional Republican candidate, that, that there are these leaders like Maldonado who were able to, to take part. Israel also seems like it's a very important issue for this community as well. And there were some notable foreign policy accomplishments that the Trump administration had also secured with regards to countries like the United Arab Emirates recognizing Israel. Did that also come up in some of your reporting where folks would talk about that? For sure. And that was one where for some evangelical voters, that is the deciding factor is Israel. It's a small number, but there are leaders like Joel Rosenberg, who's joined in the White House on Israel Matters, who said that it wasn't until seeing Trump's commitment on Israel that he decided to drop a never Trump label he held in the 2016 campaign and vote for him. Yeah, there are people that that, that is their, their number one issue. And I don't think you see that as much outside of evangelicalism at all, that, that Israel would be their, 
they're number one. Yeah, I'm interested in some of the coalitions that that kind of come around some of these, both between kind of conservative evangelicals and Christians who would see each other as together and others that kind of get get put together, kind of con, uh, conservative religious cohorts. The relationship between evangelicals and Mormons has been a tricky one, both theologically and politically over the last many years. But Ryan, what did you see emerging there? The LDS vote in 2016 was fascinating to me because it was 55% for Trump, 25% for Clinton, and then the other 20% went for third-party candidates, especially a guy named Evan McMullen, who was a Mormon from Utah and a Republican, sort of an old-school, like, 2000s Republican, not like a Trump Republican. He got 13% of the LDS vote. So what was interesting to me for, to looking at 2020 was they there really weren't third-party options for Mormons to, to go for in 2020. So the question becomes, if you don't have a third-party option, where do you go? And if, if the exit polls are to be believed, it looks like almost all of those people who voted for third party in 2016 voted for Trump in 2020. Biden got 25% of the LDS vote in 2020, and that's exactly what Hillary Clinton got four years ago. So that third-party vote did not break evenly up to, to both candidates. It, vote, it broke exclusively towards Donald Trump, which I think is a really interesting sign going forward. You know, Utah is a deep red state, but there are more LDS moving to different states, especially Arizona, which is a state that was in play in 2020. I think that, you know, Arizona now moves solidly in the blue category, but as, if more and more Mormons do go to Arizona, that could pull the state back towards the red side. And it sort of shows you that that the LDS vote in 2016 was a mirage in a lot of ways. They're not as moderate as we, as at least as I thought they were, and they were they actually voted pretty pretty similar, not exactly as similar to white evangelicals, but they're very similar politically, especially on issues like abortion. They identify as conservatives, gun rights, those kind of things. So I think that's something to look forward going forward. Ryan, I also have a question for you about all those folks out there who are not affiliated with any particular religion. Do we at this point have any type of political profile for this group or is it kind of all over the place? There's three different types of nuns, N-O-N-E-S. I actually have a book coming out, plug, March 3rd, called The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, Where They're Going, where I break down the three different types of nuns. There's atheists, agnostics, and nothing in particular is actually what they check, box they check. Atheists are super liberal, very democratic, very progressive. They're about 6% of the population. They voted for Biden 80-20, which is no surprise. Agnostics are sort of slightly less liberal version of your atheist. 75% of them voted for Biden in 2020. But then your nothing in particular group is really fascinating to me because they are one of the largest religious groups in America. One in five Americans is a nothing in particular. And I haven't seen voting stats for them in 2020, but in 2016, they actually broke for Trump. They were only 32% for Romney in 2012, but they were 40% for Trump in 2016, and they are all over the country. The issue with the nothing in particular is they have very low levels of education. Only about 20% of them have a college degree when it's about 45% of atheists. So they're, they're a lot different educationally, and they don't turn out as much. So I think that's the kind of group, if one of the parties could have activated, that could have helped win some of their vote share. Unfortunately, we don't have data on that yet, but it looks like the nuns overall and the it's IC right now. 73% of them voted for Biden, which is some strength from 2016. It looks like that Biden was able to win back some of those nothing in particulars, which actually that and white Catholics together might actually be where Biden made the most gains from 2016. Those are the kind of groups that helped him, like we talked about in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. The staffers here on, on, on our podcast today know I'm not a much of a political person and get annoyed about talking about evangelicalism as a political movement or even kind of in some ways a sociological movement and even poll numbers kind of drive me crazy on occasion but sorry glad, Ted I'm, <laughs> I love that I love the conversation today but I am curious about what we see if we know anything yet I mean obviously I think a lot of it is going to depend on who ends up taking the presidency you know back when I started here at Christianity today there was a lot of distinction between talking about evangelicals and talking about kind of the religious right as almost separate from evangelicals there was overlap but it was a Venn diagram where where those things those circles were were very separate obviously coming out of the 2016 election talking about you know how evangelicalism was kind of synonymous with kind of the religious right especially a white religious right in kind of the at least the popular image here i am curious to see if we think there's anything that we know yet about evangelicalism 
as a historical movement. <laughs> Is there any hope that we see about separating out the conversation of evangelicals as a renewal movement and talking about it as a political movement, or are we just, is this just totally a repeat of 2016 and that evangelicalism is going to be once again seen as this solid political block? And because it's a convenient and huge political block that's going to dominate a lot of conversation, that's going to affect the way we can talk about evangelicalism religiously and historically. Anyone see any hope for that division moving forward? I'll share something kind of more anecdotal, but I think is along these lines. One of the people who I talked to leading up to the election last night was Catherine Freeman, who's written for CT, and she used to work in public policy for the Baptist General Convention of Texas. I asked her about, she's an African-American woman, about 2016 versus today, and she described how Christians of color, evangelicals of color, have different expectations going into 2020 that a lot of them were frustrated, hurt, disappointed in the white evangelical vote. But she sees regardless of outcome, whether we, we have Trump reelected or, or whether Biden wins, that those those evangelicals of color have kind of a new sense of, of resilience and faith and that she's seeing a lot of like flourishing from the margins, flourishing despite circumstances, and seemed really hopeful about kind of lessons learned between 2016 and 2020. And I think as we zoom out, and we as Christianity Today in particular, try to acknowledge that right white evangelicals are this nice, tight Republican voting bloc that's nice for pollsters and statisticians like Ryan to talk about, that it's not the breadth of the church. And we've pushed even Pew for, you know, these multi-ethnic evangelical numbers. And we certainly don't define the church that way. The more and more we zoom out, we're going to see like rich nuance between people and we will see disagreement. But I think that's also where we see like unity in Christ demonstrated. So I'm really looking to ways that we we might listen to voices beyond that 81%, I guess, to see the work of the church overall. Kate, can I just have you give folks who did not have a chance to read the piece that you assigned last week about the Chinese-American vote? Sure. And that was one where I think it's it's a slice of a small vote, but it, it also tells us something about the nature of the church, which is that, yes, there are so Chinese-American Christians being the most undecided Asian-American kind of voting corner where there's just a lot of different political priorities depending on generation and country of origin and views towards China policy now. And certainly there's a shared fate there. There are conservative values around religious freedom and in some cases abortion and gay marriage. But also there is a younger generation that's less tolerant of what they see as hateful speech from the president, what they see as harmful policies on immigration and and refugees. And so we see that happening in that one small demographic of Chinese American Protestants, which I think they estimated at 1 million. But I think you would see that across different different racial groups within evangelicalism too, that there are conservative values, but there are also what we would see as some progressive values and both of them stemming from what they see as like a biblical commitment to what the way of Christ is. Any other closing thoughts from you, Ryan or Daniel? I'll just bring in data real quick. So this is what I do when I'm bored. I scrape Twitter for the word evangelical. So all the tweets that contain the word evangelical, I've done it over a long period of time. (laughs) I know. Welcome to fun at my house. So I wrote a, a book chapter that's coming out pretty soon where I showed that the word Trump is showing up in a higher and higher concentration of tweets that contain the word evangelical over the last couple of years, which means at least in the eyes of the general public, evangelicalism and Trump are being more closely aligned. And and that's, you know, that's Twitter's obviously social media is not the world. It's only 20% of Americans actually tweet. But I think it's it shows you kind of what the chatter looks like is that at least in the consciousness of social media, which is typically young people, teched up people, educated people, they're seeing evangelicalism more as a political movement and less as a religious movement every day. And I would yeah, I would add to that so far, there's nothing in 2020 that would make us think that 2016 was some wild aberration or a fluke, right? Like the election's not decided and all of the exit polls, we won't really know how everything broke down for with the demographics, the voting demographics for 
a good while, but there's nothing right now that makes us think that what we've learned in the last four years was wildly off or something. I see with, with evangelicalism both an increasing tendency to identify it mainly as a political group and a, a bit of a growing division between white evangelicalism and places where evangelicalism is only white evangelicalism, places where evangelicalism means something more pluralistic and global. Sometimes when people are talking about white evangelicals, I do wonder how much they're just talking about whiteness. I think going forward, it will help us to try and sort those things out when and where we can. I want to end there, but I do have one quick question just because it's prompted by what we just mentioned, and that is, knowing what we know so far, is there any indication that we would see a resurgence of the kind of early 2000s compassionate conservatism, evangelical Republican push that we've seen from folks like people who have become kind of Trump critics in the Republican Party, like the Mike, Michael Gersons or the David Frenches? It looks like, from my perspective, it seems, seems like that's very unlikely. One word from each of you, likely, unlikely, too early to tell. Oh, I was going to base my answer on the other two. I'm sorry, I don't have any gut on this. Just because yeah. sometimes I feel like people whose job it is to have political opinions, it's hard for me to make a guess on them. Yeah, sure. If we're talking about people like in the pews. I think that people are going to stay steady with, with what's happened. I don't think that there's a great change happening there. I don't have a yeah. good. There are, a couple of, there are a couple of rising stars within republicanism who seem to simultaneously appeal to Trump supporters and be sort of on board with Trump and also maybe shift on the margins a little bit to be a little bit more compassionate, conservative or concerned about some issues in a different way than Trump while still being basically sympathetic to Trump's larger project. I mean, I think Josh Hawley is an example and Tim Scott from South Carolina would fit very well in a sort of compassionate conservative mold, but he's not never Trump or anti-Trump by any means. Yeah, maybe even John James, the uh, black uh, conservative mm -hmm. in Michigan, which is still at this time of recording too close to call. Ryan, any thoughts on that as we close? So two points. One is that Trump was the preferred candidate of evangelicals early in the primaries in 2016. The idea that like they coalesced around him later on is sort of a myth. The only group that favored Cruz was evangelicals. White evangelicals went to church more than once a week, which is only about 10% of all white evangelicals. The majority of white evangelicals like Trump. I think the operative question for me is who, if Trump loses, let's say in 2020, who do they nominate in 2024? Who do the Republicans nominate? Do, do they go down the Trump train and continue to go down that line of sort of far-right MAGA Republicans? Or do they sort of turn back and nominate a more moderate Republican? I think that will tell us a lot about what evangelicals are because they hold huge sway among the Republican Party. It'll tell you a lot about what the Republican Party is going for. Is it going to continue to go down the Trump the, the Trump angle, or is it going to sort of move back to, let's say, like a George H.W. Bush type, which, by the way, there are not that many of those people on the national stage right now. I think that's what I'm looking for. All right. Wow. What a fantastic conversation. I am very jealous of everyone's ability to just spit out paragraphs <laughs> at a very early time in the morning, especially when most of you are sleep deprived. So thank you all for coming on to our show and sharing your insights with us. To our listeners out there, we hope that this has been really instructive and insightful for you. Give us a sense of where you are at and also you know, anything that you're hearing in here in this episode that resonates with your experience or it's not necessarily reflect that, we would love to hear about it. And you can do that by sending us an email. We are at podcasts at christianitytoday.com or you can find us on Twitter at CT Podcast. That is podcast with an S. All right. Even though it is a special version of Quick to Listen, that does not mean that we are not, that we are going to dispense with doing Quick to Listen things, which in this case is doing precious moments where everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy recently. I think it is now is a great time to do this. Ted, I'm nominating you to go first, and then we will push it out to our guests. Sounds great. I do not have a board game this week. That I'm going to go with a book that I'm very much enjoying. It's a book called The Emergence of Evangelical Spirituality, The Age of Edwards, Newton, and Whitfield. It's in the series, The Classics of Western Spirituality. It came out a few years ago, actually, but I, I've had it on my wish list for a long time. And finally, 
there was a used copy that came down in price. And boy, it is great. It, it, one of these things that has just like little excerpts from letters, journals, hymns, yeah, all sorts of just little bits about kind of evangelical spirituality in kind of that uh, 1700s, early 1800s period. From a lot of the people that I know, you know, there's the Isaac Watts in here and the George Whitfields, but a lot of names I was unfamiliar with. And I think just reading some of that, the spiritual writings from people writing about scripture and spiritual practices, especially some of the early evangelical writings on the Holy Spirit and new life in Christ is is really, <laughs> especially in this political season, reinvigorating me and helping me, helping to remind me about what is what is awesome and core about the evangelical, uh, the evangelical movement. It has helped to breathe some fresh air and, and new life into, into my spiritual reading. So that's, I've, I, again, the name of the book is The Emergence of Evangelical Spirituality. Not cheap, but great. Uh, let's, let's hit Kate first. Kate, what is bringing you joy? Okay. I don't have a great big answer. And so I'm just answering honestly. And I think it's going to be memes and gifts. I am grateful for all my friends who are like texting me encouragement and just keeping me laughing. So there's one that is a someone who puts cheese in a chocolate fountain. And I think I've watched it so many times over the past 24 hours. So I'm keeping it light and silly. My husband walked in on me last night working and said, are you working or are you searching Giphy? And at the time <laughs> I really was searching Giphy. So I'm happy for anything keeping us light. And on that note, I will actually plug one of my friends runs the county clerk's Twitter account in Harris County, Texas, where Houston is. So if you follow at Harris Votes, she is full of all the best gifts and memes and is responsible for some of the great voter turnout they had in that area. So keep the humor coming. I need it at least. And Kate, where can people find you on social media? Oh, I'm at Kate Shelnut on on Twitter and two L's, two T's. And you can find Daniel and I's initial coverage of the election at ChristianityToday.com, as well as updated coverage when we know who wins. Awesome. All right, Daniel. So what is making me happy? Well, my chicken has started laying eggs, which is exciting. Um, So on brand. (laughs) For people... (laughs) Well, I had a history one, but you said no stories. So um, we're going with chickens today. For people following the saga of my chickens, I started out with 15, lost six to a raccoon attack, and then ended up with mostly roosters. So the roosters are now, all except one, are safely in my freezer. The hen, the very small, sturdy little hen, has started laying one egg a day, which is just in time for fall. That's so mean to use the word safely in freezer in the same sentence. (laughs) Keeping them safe. My neighbors were starting to get, when you have like 10 roosters all crowing at the same, it gets to be a little, it was, yeah, it was time. (laughs) When When they're chicks, they're so adorable. My wife's never raised chickens before. I did this a lot as a kid. It's my first time as an adult. But when they're chicks, you're like, I will have these forever. We will keep them. We will never. These are what? How can you? And then when they're roosters, you're like, it's it's time. Let's get the hatchet. And Daniel, tell us where you are on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Daniel Silliman. Ryan, what is your precious moment? Oh, I got to go on brand here. And that is that democracy sort of held together last night. We were all worried. All my political science friends and I were worried. We're, you know, we're always, we're partisans. Like everyone else has our own baked in political partisanship. But I think all of us above and beyond that care more about democracy as a system. We think it really works and we want to continue to work. And we were worried that with the votes changing overnight, with the mail-in ballots being counted later, that, you know, a lot of people were going to start casting doubts on the election saying it's rigged. I know that Donald Trump did, but none of his party picked up on that and amplified that message. And I think looking at social media this morning, I'm I'm not seeing a lot of people like yelling and screaming about voter fraud and this election's being stolen and let's take it to the courts. I know it's still early, but I really think like this is a time when like people thought about country over party more and people thought about the big picture more than their own personal gain. And that to me is really the most important outcome of any election is a peaceful transfer of power from one party to the other or staying with one party. That's what the, what the, what the results end up being, but there's not riots in the streets. There's not, you know, widespread civil unrest. And I really think that's, that's highly unlikely at this stage of the game, which gives me a lot of hope that we can actually figure this out in the highly polarized times that we're in and that we can get beyond this moment. People can find you where? 
social media at Ryan Burge, R-Y-A-N-B-U-R-G-E. RyanBurge.net is my website. I write for religionandpublic.blog, and I have a book, like I talked about, called The Nuns, coming out on March the 3rd of 2021. Everyone buy a copy, please. Just to wrap with the precious moments, since there's now just so much joy in this podcast, I will give a shout out to the translators that I get to work with as someone who is helping to lead the efforts to translate our content into different languages. Currently, right now, I think we've translated into 13 or 14 different languages since the start of the year. And I have the opportunity to work with the translation coordinators for around six or seven of those languages who are really, really phenomenal human beings and many of them who have heard me on the podcast, which has also been cool to connect with them about that. But I really enjoy just getting to work with them. The Spanish, Our Spanish language coordinator humors me and lets me communicate with her mostly in Spanish, which I really appreciate. Other people are letting me practice their French with them, which I also appreciate. And also just the amount that it takes, the amount of work that it can take to get content up in a timely manner is not an easy one. And I truly appreciate everyone's good humor and also excellent work. So you have not seen some of our translated content. This is also a shout out and a plug to that too, because we've been doing really great work with it, but definitely to our translators who are making it possible. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Boon Miyashola and the music is done by Sweeps. If you have feedback for us or stuff that you want us to know about, send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com or you can go on to Twitter at CT Podcasts. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. On Apple Podcasts is the best way to rate and review the show. We will see you all next week. Thanks. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?